Well, good morning, Grace Gospel Church. So we are continuing our study into the book of Hebrews, and we're now entering chapter 5. And so far, three times in chapter 2, verse 17, chapter 3, verse 1, and chapter 4, verse 14, the author has described Jesus as a high priest. And now, what we're seeing in chapter 5 is that the author of Hebrews continues to lean into this concept of Jesus Christ as the high priest even more in our passage. And, and he'll, in fact, continue to do this further on as well for chapters talking about Christ and how he is the high priest. And that is because this concept is very important, extremely important. In, in Judaism, the holiness of God and the need for cleansing was essential. It was pervasive. In short, you simply could not have any sort of significant blessing or any robust relationship with God unless you were first clean. So the idea of priestly duties was extremely important and was an absolute necessity within Judaism. And now perhaps what is, what is happening is maybe those on the outside are criticizing. Maybe those Jews on the outside are criticizing these Jewish Christians on the grounds of their, them allegedly having no high priest. Or perhaps it was internal. Maybe, maybe people were thinking, huh, do we have a high priest? And what we have now is we have Jewish Christians understanding that, that the office of high priest is extremely important, and people are criticizing them tentatively on, on not having a high priest. Saying things like, you know, how can your religion possibly be better? You're lacking this essential office. Where is the necessary priestly office? Is, is your God not holy like our God? And now the author of Hebrews, he is giving a comprehensive response to any such criticism. The Holy Spirit, through the author of Hebrews, is declaring through our passage that there is indeed a high priest in Christianity. And moreover, the high priesthood of Christianity is far superior to the high priesthood of Aaron in Judaism. The author wants to reassure Jewish Christians of the superiority of Christ as this, this high priest. Once again, he's invoking them to consider Jesus, but this time as the ultimate priest. In Christ's priesthood, it, it simply is better, we will soon see. And in light of this fact, they were to press on. The reason for holding fast was, was rooted in an understanding of Christ as the high priest. Uh, the last command we actually see the author give is in chapter 4, verse 16. It's a command to approach the throne of God with confidence. And, and why should they have that confidence? If this is a holy God... Why should they have that confidence? Well, friends, it is because they have a great high priest. And as the Lord preserved this inspired letter, this is for us to consider as well. This means it's important for us to see Jesus as a high priest. We all deal with, with sin. Even throughout this week, I found myself just with, with sinful thoughts and thinking, oh, I'm so unclean. And, and you know what? We need to reconsider Christ and, and, and the function, the role that he serves as the great high priest. And, and though we're far removed from the sacrificial system with, with animals, unlike those at the time of the writing, we still need a high priest. And the goal this morning is to appreciate Jesus Christ as the ultimate high priest for us. When you feel like giving up, friends, hold fast because Jesus, he is the high priest who had suffered and offers eternal life to us and deals with our sin. Indeed, the Jews were right. This priestly office is necessary. God is holy. There should be atonement for sins. But friends, we have a great high priest. And as we understand this truth, I pray that it transforms us. So, so let's now read the scriptures together and see this point come alive. If you're able, please stand for the reading of God's word. 
We are in Hebrews chapter 5, and the Holy Scripture says this, For every high priest is taken from among men, uh, taken from among men, is appointed on behalf of men in things pertaining to God, in order to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and misguided, since he himself also is beset with weakness. And because of it, he is obligated to offer sacrifices for sins, as for the people, so also for himself. And no one takes the honor for himself, but receives it when he is called by God, even as Aaron was. Might be having problems with the, uh, the remote. Oh, well, there we go. It's just Okay, it seems to be working good now. Um, so, so also... Christ did not glorify himself so as to become a high priest, but he who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Just as he says also in another passage, You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his piety. Although he was a son, he learned obedience. And the things which he uh, from the things which he suffered, and having been made complete, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation, being designated by God as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we come before you now and we thank you for this word. Lord, we pray that the truth of this word would just be understood by us, Lord. Lord, allow us to understand the truth that you may glorify yourself, may glorify the Son, Jesus Christ, and that we may leave this place transformed with a greater understanding of him and a greater heart of worship towards him. We pray this in Christ's name, amen. So as Hebrews 4.13 states, we must give an account to a God who knows our every motivation and sees our every deed. It's a rather scary thought. And indeed, the Christian God is a holy God who knows our sins. Therefore, we need a high priest. We need a mediator. The Jews were not wrong in their ideology for the need of a high priest. We need someone to cleanse us of our sins. If we didn't have this priestly role to address sins, you know, our faith... Uh, isn't, isn't that, that spectacular? And indeed, Judaism would be superior in this regard. And I would venture to say that any religion that takes seriously the holiness of, of God demands something akin to priestly duties to deal with sin appropriately. There needs to be an atonement. God needs to be appeased. And for us, thankfully, Christianity does deal with these things. It does deal with sin. And it deals with sin in the most complete and comprehensive way, far better than any other religion. We have a high priest, as I said earlier. And that is the point of the passage. We're going to see that the Scriptures clearly reveal Jesus Christ as our perfect, eternal high priest who is even better than Aaron. Not only is there a priesthood in Christianity, but there is a superior and perfect priesthood. Now, before we go into this, I want you to be careful. This was written to folks with a Jewish background. Therefore, they know, they know that the Aaronic priesthood was a God-ordained institute. The priesthood of Aaron, it was established by the Lord, and it was seen, and in fact was, a great grace for the time which it existed prior to Messiah, which allowed the Lord to deeply connect with his chosen people. But nonetheless, this, this ironic priesthood, this old priesthood that was in place, should best uh, be understood really as an incomplete placeholder for the perfect priest, Christ. So as we go through this, I want to challenge us to, to keep that, that nuance in mind. Don't have a lens of evil, old priesthood versus good, new priesthood. The better way to think about it is imperfect, incomplete priesthood versus perfect and complete priesthood. 
There are indeed certain aspects of the Aaronic priesthood that inform the new perfect. And we'll see aspects like cleansing of sin and compassion come forth in the first four verses. You see, the problem with this old priesthood was not that it was inherently bad. The problem is it was limited and incomplete, imperfect. And the author is is showing that Christ's priesthood supersedes and is better than this old priesthood. And, And this old priesthood was merely acting as a placeholder for the new one. Now, now, to show this is indeed the case, the author does something uh, interesting. First, the author presents the priesthood as it stood within Judaism. The author does this in verses 1 through 4. And then the author takes the force of that description that the Jews already believed, and then they use it to elevate Jesus. And in verses 5 through 10, the author makes the point that Christ himself meets all of the qualifications, exists in an entirely different order of priesthood, and even supersedes any limitations that the earthly Aaronic priesthood entails. And thus he establishes himself as the ultimate high priest. And therefore, in in line with this, this way of thinking, Uh, along with the lines of how the author is himself arguing, I've broken it down into two points here. The imperfect, incomplete, ironic high priesthood and the perfect and complete high priesthood of Christ. So let's look at this first point, this imperfect and incomplete ironic priesthood as described by the author of Hebrews. First, he describes the duties of the earthly high priest. Verse 1, For every high priest was taken from, among, uh, taken from among men is appointed on behalf of people in things pertaining to God in order to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. So firstly, a high priest had to be taken from among men. They, they could not be an angel or a deceased spirit. Moreover, if there was theoretically a a talking dog with disposable thumbs and could do sacrifices, that creature would not do either. They could not perform this role of high priest. And, and why? Because the priest, it says, represented the people. They were on behalf of the people. That was their job. Appointed on behalf of the people, it says in verse 1. No angel or spirit or animal could appropriately represent human people. It had to be someone from among them. And priests, you know, they represented man to God. And it turns out only a man could do this. Only, only a human is capable of doing this. Thus, high priests were taken from among men to serve on behalf of men. And this is why, by the way, the humanity of Christ needs to be fully embraced alongside his deity. The general role of priest as described demanded they be taken from among men and stand on behalf of men. Now, this doesn't mean that Jesus was a mere human or a mere man, but it does mean that he did indeed fully encapsulate all that it was to be a human. He knows what it is like. He met this qualification through the incarnation, through his human nature, and he could serve this priestly function. Uh, More to come on this later when we get to verse 7 and 8. So so they had to be from among men to represent man to God. Now, what exactly did the priestly communication from man to God look like? Verse 1 tells us that as well. It says that for every high priest taken from among men is appointed on behalf of people in things pertaining to God in order to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. The job of the high priest that communicated from, from man to God was one which entailed sacrifice, atonement, the offering of sacrifice for the sins of mankind. And as alluded to earlier, the holiness and righteousness of God, they demanded these sacrifices. Justice cannot be compromised in a perfect being. Otherwise, it is not a perfect being, some other God, but certainly not the God most high. A God who merely wrote off sin, that was not Yahweh, the Most High God. For blessing, for deep relationship with Yahweh, there needed to be some sort of payment for wrongdoing. Now, thankfully, the Lord graciously instituted 
the shedding of animal blood temporarily. That is the placeholder aspect. Leviticus 17.11 states that life is in the blood, and thus animal blood was provided and, and used to make atonement. This shedding of blood, it was highly, a highly symbolic reminder of the consequence of their sin, which is death. Some argue, too, regarding this high priestly office, that it was best encapsulated, the essence of this office was encapsulated by the Day of Atonement, also described in Leviticus chapter 16. It was a major yearly sacrifice to God for the sins of the people. And it had to be done every, every year. There were strict regulations on how this was to be done. They would have special attire. They would have to do things in a certain order. They would have to uh, sacrifice the animal in a certain way. All of these complexities are again described in Leviticus 16. And here's the point. All of this was good. A Jewish reader reading this would be nodding their head in agreement. This was a good, gracious act of God. I mean, think about this. His people could continue to fellowship with him through sacrifices. But let it be known, though this was good, this was but a temporary placeholder. Later on in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 4, the author will say that it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. This was a temporary thing. Moreover, these sacrifices, they had to be done continually. Much different than the sacrifice our Lord gave. You see, there is a limitation in place within this system. Perhaps that is because this system is itself incomplete. But, but nonetheless, for now, just understand that this, this high priestly role involved making sacrifices for God. That was the essence of the high priest. Making sacrifices to God for the people since. This was, again, that sacred duty Something non-negotiable in Judaism. And someone needed to perform this duty. So, so here's the picture so far. We have an earthly priest taken from among men and made sacrifices for the sins of men to God. And now the author shifts from, from this, this type of duty of sacrifice to a theme, perhaps that surprised some, a theme of compassion. The author of Hebrews Perhaps some people's surprise really has an emphasis on compassion, gentleness, and understanding. And we already saw that Christ meets this role in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. He meets this good aspect as well. But our scripture here, verse 2, says that the high priest, the ideal high priest, he could deal gently with the ignorant and the misguided. An ideal priest was one who was able to show compassion, to understand. The priest was able to genuinely care for the people. The ideal priest wasn't arrogant, but, but gentle. Again, Hebrews 4, 15 already presents Christ with such compassion, right? And uh, MacArthur gives a rather long description of this term compassion found in the text in which he elaborates on the source of the compassion. And he says that compassion, it means to bear gently because you feel it just like they feel it, is how he words it. The, sources, uh, the, the priest's source of gentleness comes from knowing that he has got the same problems. Now, pay attention to the nuance here because we always want to look at Christ in the best possible light and apply the good to him, but never the bad to him. Okay? So, so Christ meets this good aspect. He existed in, in human form, fulfills this well. And we'll talk about that more. Again, it's brought out later on in the text. However, there was a negative, imperfect aspect to this earthly compassion. You see, part of the source of compassion for the earthly high priest was his own weaknesses and his sin, it says in the Scripture. He can deal gently with the ignorant and misguided since he himself also is clothed in weakness, and because of it, he is obligated to offer sacrifices for sins for himself as well as other people. You see, the high priest, the earthly high priest, had ignorant moments. 
The high priest committed their own sins, had their own impurities. The high priest himself needed to wash their own hands, cleanse themselves, and offer sacrifices for their own sins. In Leviticus chapter 16, verses 6, verse 11, and 24 are clear. There was a sacrifice to be done for the sins of the high priest himself. And the Jews would probably nod their head to an agreement here as well. They understood Leviticus 16. Earthly priests sinned. No one was, was God. No one was perfect. And so they knew, yes, even the high priest is not perfectly holy and, and perfectly clean. We already know, though, that from Hebrews 4.15, I keep quoting it, that Jesus did not sin. He was tempted in, in every way, right? He was tempted and can sympathize perfectly with our experience, 100% human, but he was sinless. He already, we can already see how Christ is superseding the old high priest. You know, and, and some might argue, well, he doesn't know the destruction of sin, then that's also not true. He does. He felt the fullness of the weight of sin while he was on the cross. It wasn't his own sin, but he understands probably far deeper than any of us. He experienced it. So you see, see what the author of Hebrews is doing so far? He's giving a general description of a, a limited, imperfect priesthood to bolster Christ's superiority. And so here he is acknowledging the reality that the Aaronic high priests were themselves sinners. So, so the point, the ideal earthly high priest was compassionate. However, the source was because they themselves were weak and even sinned. Let us now turn to verse 4 to see the final descriptive point of this old, ironic, earthly priesthood that he makes before jumping into Christ's new priesthood. The last point has to do with how these priests were chosen, their selection. Verse 4 says, And no one takes the honor to himself, but receives it when he is called by God, even as Aaron was. You see, God always selected his priests directly. He called them. These duties that we describe belong to those only chosen and affirmed to complete those duties by God. Part of why this office was so important was because God did establish it, and he did affirm it. So to go against this would be an incredible move. They had to be chosen by God, and uh, there's some, some benefits to that. I suppose this stifled pride that any high priest would have uh, in a perfect world, I suppose, right? You know, if I earn my position climbing up the ladder, it's a lot easier for me to be proud about it. However, knowing that God chooses people and places and where they belong, it's pretty humbling. This priestly role was not a role any mere man could aspire to but it had to be from God's own choosing. Now, this is kind of unlike how we think today. Uh, generally speaking, our occupations, our duties, whatever we do can be whatever we want it to be. Usually, if I want to be a doctor, I can go to school and become a doctor or a lawyer. Likewise, I can do the same. However, these religious roles, they weren't like that. You were really more so born into your role and then chosen by God. Now, the only one I know who can who can choose when and where someone is born and to whom they are born to and controls all of these variables would be God himself. Therefore, every person in a high priestly office was, was ultimately chosen by God. And by the way, if you performed these duties and you weren't chosen by God, you didn't have that stamp of approval by God, you would suffer severe consequences. Death. In fact, and in fact, number 16 describes the inappropriate sin of Korah and his group acting as priests. And we know what happened to them. They were swallowed up by the ground. In Numbers chapter 16, verses 39 and 40 are clear. It says, Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, took the bronze censers, which were used to, to burn the incense inappropriately, and he used them, he hammered them to the altar and remind, as a reminder to the sons of Israel so that no layman or anyone who was not a descendant of Aaron would approach to burn incense before the Lord, so he would not become like Korah and his group. So, so 
This choosing, this affirmation was essential. And this, this is important to keep in mind as we transition to Christ's superiority uh, in just a moment. But, but for now, based off of the text, here is the full earthly picture of a high priest sort of wrapped up. High priest was taken from among men on behalf of men to make sacrifices for both their sin and the people's sin in accordance with God's command. They were ideally to have deep compassion for the people, but it was rooted in their own weakness and sin, and they were ultimately chosen by God. Okay, that's the description basically that we just read. Now, this is overall, again, a pretty decent description. The system that was in place was a great grace for the time, as, as I said earlier. They deserved none of it. They didn't deserve this system at all. They had God's direct interactions. They had covering for sins. They had compassion despite imperfections. The high priestly description here is, is, isn't terrible. However, the question remains, is there something better? Is there something more complete Is there a high priest with no sin at all, but perfect compassion and understanding? Is there a perfect priesthood? Friends, the answer to that question is yes. Yes, there is. The high priesthood of Jesus Christ trumps this old earthly priesthood. You know, the problem was the Jews, they were kind of stuck in the old This may come out more next week. The the fact is, there was now in place with Jesus Christ something new, something better. Jesus, the great high priest. And friends, for you today, there is something better. There is is a better way to deal with your sin than the way you're currently dealing with it. Maybe it's not necessarily this Old Testament sacrifice, but there is a perfect high priest for you. And I pray you encounter him. I pray that you meet him. Here today. Now, along with the author, let's shift to the superiority and the completeness of Christ's high priesthood as we enter verses 5 through 10. The perfect and complete high priesthood of Christ. Verses 5 and 6 say this So also, Christ did not glorify himself as to become a high priest, but He who said to him, you are my son, just as he says also in another passage, you are a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, again, the point we just made, right? The father's role in directly choosing his priests was essential. There needed, for the Jews to understand, there needed to be a stamp of God's approval for the office. Now, what was confusing probably for Jews, again, who are maybe just used to this old system, is the fact that they knew that priests came from the tribe of Levi. However, that's not the tribe that Jesus was from. He was from the tribe of Judah. And and they knew that God chose priests. They would be nodding their head. Usually when you're making an argument, you want to get points that people agree with, and then they agree with your conclusion. Right? And so I would imagine the author is arguing the same way. They're nodding their heads that, yes, God chooses priests. But something, something's got to give here because for them, a priest had to come from the tribe of Levi. Especially in light of number 16, they knew that this, the priest had to be of a certain birth. What gives? Well, you see, the author of Hebrews is arguing That the Father is choosing Christ to be in an entirely new order of priesthood altogether. A different order, still chosen by God, still has the stamp of approval, but a different order altogether. One commentator says, a new and different order of priesthood requires a different form of divine authorization. And this was given by God through the quoted Old Testament passages here, Psalm 110.4 and Psalm 2.7. The author of Hebrews is quoting the Old Testament Psalms, these holy inspired texts that, that Jews would have recognized 
from the Psalms? Yes. They would have recognized these texts, and he is using them to affirm the priesthood of Jesus Christ. He is saying, indeed, the Father affirmed the sonship and the priesthood of Christ. Moreover, we, we see that this is a superior priesthood. Christ is, is already better. Look at how it's prefaced. He is not you know, just a human priest. He is the Son of God, it says in the text. Christ himself was the Son. This is something the author previously landed on in, in context earlier on, and now he's affirming it again here. The author quotes Psalm 2-7, You are my Son, which is understood as a messianic description and applies it to Christ. He is the Son of God. And remember, again, he has already used this uh, in the past, and it's tied to concepts like the eternality of the Son, the eternal inheritance of the Son, and so on. His deity here is, is coming out. This was all touched on earlier, by the way, to show that Christ is better than angels, superior to angels. Uh, this is a preface which indeed also reiterates that, yes, this new priest is God. This new priest is the Son of God. Indeed, it is not just a priesthood of an ordinary man, but the Son of God Himself, fully man, fully God. And by the way, this, this, there's sort of like the author of Hebrews does an incredible job of balancing those two. In verse 7, he says, in his humanity. In verse 8, he says, although he was the son. He's really trying to get that, that aspect across as well. Um, but this, this was a better priesthood. And, and if anyone is able to be a mediator between God and man, if anyone is able to make a perfect sacrifice, it would be this individual called the Son of God. Any priesthood that involves Messiah was surely superior to any priesthood that did not. And this sort of priesthood, though, again, it was so radically different from what they knew. They didn't quite understand how to wrap their heads around it. And Hebrews, again, argues for God's affirmation of Christ first as the Son of God from Psalm 2-7, and then he actually says that Jesus is part of a new order of priesthood in Psalm 110-4. Verse 6 just says, he says also in another passage, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, this was not used to usually describe Messiah, but the author here uses Psalm 110.4 to describe Christ. And he argues just as, meaning the weight of God's declaration of Christ as the Son in Psalm 2.7 is the same weight of God's declaration of Christ as priest in Psalm 110.4. Moreover, this Psalm 110 verse 4, it's going to be used or alluded to again about seven or eight more times throughout Hebrews. The author sees this verse as a significant divine authorization of Christ's priesthood. The author is saying, verse 4, priests are chosen by God. And then verse 5 and 6, the author is saying he is an entirely new order. And, and the author uses Old Testament passages to prove it. Now, we need to understand perhaps a little bit more about this figure, this, this order of Melchizedek. Who exactly was Melchizedek? How was this order distinct from the order of Aaron? Well, Melchizedek actually had two roles. He was a king and he was a priest. He was the king and priest of Salem, it says, short for Jerusalem. He is the earliest figure of both a king and a priest combined. Melchizedek, he's described in Genesis chapter 14, verse 18, as one who worshipped the one true God, Yahweh, the God Most High. And this is what the Old Testament states. However, how is it that the Old Testament describes a priest before Aaron? Genesis 14 takes place before the Aaronic priesthood is instituted. It's the time of Abraham. Nevertheless, the words are clear. It says, Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine since he was priest of God Most High. Very clear this is a reference to Yahweh, not some other lesser God, the God Most High. And the author is trying to show them that they have too narrow of a view of priesthood. 
The author is alluding to Melchizedek to show the, through the Old Testament that there is another order. The author of Hebrews uses Psalm 110, verse 4, and Melchizedek as a model or a pattern of Messiah's different order of priesthood. He is a type or a model of, of what Jesus was like, the coming deliverer. And he finds fulfillment, this, this order of Melchizedek, it, it, it's fulfilled in Jesus Christ, both the king. Remember, the son has that inheritance too. There's lots of connections here. Both the king and the priest. Like Melchizedek, Jesus Christ is our king and he is our priest. Chosen for two offices. An office of king and an office of high priest. This is a new order of priesthood, you see. Something totally different that God has stamped his approval on. This is a priest kinghood. So yes, Jesus is not from Levi, but he doesn't need to be because there is another order of priesthood that has God's stamp of approval. And Jesus, he is of that order. And verse 10 reiterates that, that stamp of approval, sort of an exclamation point, that it is Jesus who has been designated to this special priesthood by the Father, being designated by God as high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. It is reiterated in verse 10. These verses are essentially saying Jesus Christ is utterly unique in every way, yet fulfills everything that has ever been demanded to be fulfilled in his better priesthood. And everything about Christ's priesthood is better, and it is perfect, and it is complete. He is a priest, we see first, forever, different than the Aaronic priesthood. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, let me ask you a question. Who could possibly be a priest forever? Certainly not an imperfect man. Certainly not someone who is who's a mere man. It seems to me that generally when a man dies, their, their function ends. It would, it would be the Son of God. Right? That is why the author combined Psalm 2-7 with uh, Psalm 110-4 in his quotation for that divine approval of Jesus' priesthood. He is a forever priest, perpetually standing on our behalf and making fellowship with the Father. See, this is a new order in which Christ is the priest for all eternity. It is a final priesthood, an eternal priesthood. And friends, I'm glad that there exists an eternal high priest who stands on my behalf and made atonement for my sin and that it resonates forever. The effects of his cleansing are eternal. Verse 9 also affirms this. This is eternal salvation that is offered through our high priest. So, so yes, Christianity has a high priest, just an altogether better priesthood with Christ as the high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. We also see again that Christ was human as well. In the days of his humanity, he offered up both prayers and pleas with loud crying and tears to the one who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his piety. Now, now again, interestingly, verse 7 clearly affirms Jesus Christ's human nature, his humanity. Remember, that was an essential part of the priesthood. And it seems, again, all throughout Hebrews, the, the author is perfectly balancing deity of Christ with the humanity of Christ. And keep in mind, too, that this entails, part of being a human entails great compassion and sympathy. Again, Hebrews 4.15, he experienced life. See, this is more, there's a difference between having a full, you know, description, scientific description of pain and feeling pain. <laughs> ask, ask someone who has been experiencing pain. They will tell you, oh, there is a difference. In, in Christ, you see, he experienced life. He was human. It was him feeling pain. He understood the what it is like aspect of humanity. Christ resonates fully with human suffering and experience. And he has more compassion than any other high priest. He suffered perhaps more than any other person. Yet, he was faithful to God always. 
See, there is nothing lost in this new priesthood, only things gained. Yes, the Old Testament priests, they might have had a measure of compassion, and by the way, it was rooted in sin, but who could possibly have more compassion than Christ? He was fully human and fully God. Verse 7 notes as well, amidst this experience, it says he had devout piety. This means he had a, a reverent submission and care unto his Father and his Father's will. A caution, a, a view of the Father that is appropriate. And I cannot help but think of the Garden of Gethsemane while Jesus is sweating blood, saying, not my will, but yours be done. Perfectly holy, perfectly obedient, willing to do exactly what needs to be done. And this is the love that the Son has for the, the Father. This, this piety and this submission to His will makes Him the perfect high priest. He is, he's always does the right thing. He always does the right thing. One verse, uh, our, our verse here says that His piety, uh, that He was heard because of His piety. Father, indeed, hears the Son. Isn't it nice to know we have a high priest who speaks on our behalf and is heard by the Father? He's always heard. Now, what is odd here is that it says Christ prays and pleased the one who is able to save him from death and is heard because of his piety. Now, initially, you might look at that and say, wait a minute, didn't Jesus die? How was, how was that being heard? Didn't he die on the cross? Indeed, he did die as our sacrifice, in fact. So, so what does this mean? Well, this word from here actually has a meaning in the Greek of out from within. This could be viewed perhaps as the one who is able to save him from out of death. And indeed, this happened. Jesus Christ was resurrected from the grave. And the author is saying that this act of resurrection proves that he was heard by the Father, and that is because he had perfect piety, perfect holiness, was perfectly obedient in, in all he did. He obtained deliverance from death through the bodily resurrection. Christ also is a better high priest because he is completed in suffering and perfect in obedience. Verses 8 and 9, it says, Although he was the son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered and having been made complete. So, now, now right from the, the top, we see again this phrase, although he was the son. Again, this is basically an affirmation of the deity of Christ. And the author spent chapters making that connection clear. This really isn't up for debate. Therefore, we must ask ourselves, how could the Son of God possibly learn obedience? We must make sense of what the author says when he says that Christ learned obedience or that Christ was made complete. This does not mean that Christ attained deity. He always had it. Always, for all eternity. Remember earlier, the author said that the Son is seated at the right hand. He has set up this view of the Son that is an eternal view, that is a sure view of His deity. This has already been established as eternal and perfect in nature all throughout Hebrews 1 especially. Moreover, Hebrews 14 verse 15, he says he didn't sin. So, so what does this mean for Jesus to learn obedience? To be made complete. Now when we think of learning obedience, we think of you know, overcoming patterns of poor behavior. However, strictly speaking, learning obedience does not demand sinful behavior at all. It involves continual progressive obedience to the Father in space-time without error. And that is exactly what he did. This is sort of what was touched on in verse 7 as well exactly what Christ did. He obeyed the Father in faith, in everything, unto death. And moreover, uh, this, again, this idea of learning and suffering, they were often uh, connected in ancient understanding. Uh, thus, this is also a reference to this experiencing of, of suffering. 
that he had that was talked about in verse 7 and and in our verse here as well. Uh, The suffering which he endured served as a perfect opportunity to progressively and continually obey the Father's will despite a conscious experience of pain. It allowed him to resonate with our experience deeply, yet remain sinless, yet still become the ultimate high priest, the ultimate sacrifice. It is obedience to the Father no matter what, even unto death. And Isaiah 50, verses 5 and 6, describes the suffering Christ and says, The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not disobedient, nor did I turn my back. I gave my back to those who strike me and my cheeks to those who pull out my beard. I did not hide my face from insults and spitting. The commentator writes, experiences of suffering were the means by which the incarnate Son learned to express obedience to the will of His Father. It was the expression, the living out in real space-time, Again, this does not mean that Christ attained, somehow attained a perfection he was lacking. He always had it. But this is to be understood as the fate, the destiny, the purpose of the Son coming about and living a perfectly obedient life and being the sacrifice and being the high priest. Moreover, this trial at the cross proved you know, proved, it proved the deity he already had perfectly obedient, and then he rose, as it says. Christ had perfect obedience to the Father expressed throughout his entire life. Friends, we have a priestly representative who obeys perfectly. This is unlike the old priests who had to offer sacrifices for their own sins. Christ did not yet sin, yet experienced suffering so he can be perfectly compassionate and was made complete. And by the way, this word means actually to to consummate, to reach an end stage, working through the entire process. The word, by the way, is similar to the word that Jesus cries out on the cross. It is finished. It is complete. This is a complete priesthood. No more sacrifices are needed. And he knows, he has that compassion, he knows our experience, he knows suffering. There's everything about this is just so perfect. And Jesus knows our experience, obeys perfectly. And though it, it and through it, through this obedience, through this work, this perfect submission to the Father's will that he had, a way for eternal salvation for us is made. Through his obedient suffering and offering himself as a sacrifice for our sins. Verse 9 tells us he became to all who obey him the source of eternal salvation. Through his suffering, through his perfect obedience, through his his acts as, as here on earth, he became the source of eternal salvation. He himself is the priest who offered the perfect sacrifice himself. The other priests again had to continue offering sacrifices year in and year out. Jesus was the the person who put an end to the whole system. The veil was torn in two when Jesus, when his work was done. Permanent access, permanent fellowship with God Through Christ, this is something the old priesthood could not offer. Again, the ironic priesthood was this incomplete placeholder. It was Jesus who was the true representative. He was the person truly on our behalf. The person doing the true sacrificial work. Death is defeated because Christ is the perfect priest who took the symbolism in the Old Testament and embodied it in its truly intended sense. Moreover, this is eternal salvation. Cannot be lost, cannot be taken away. It lasts forever. It is the eternal fellowship restored between God and man. Remember, he is the priest forever. 
in the order of Melchizedek. This is what is offered through this high priest. If you're hearing my voice and you think that God doesn't demand sacrifice for wrongdoing, you and I have two totally different beings in mind. The duty of priesthood is non-negotiable. And Christ completed that duty. Christ superseded the old priesthood and became the eternal source of salvation through his suffering and his obedience, says the word. And this is offered to you today if you do not know him. But what is this idea here of obedience? He became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation. I need to obey to drink from the source of eternal salvation? No. This is, you need to understand the nuance here. This is not an earned salvation. That is not what this is saying. You do not earn salvation from obedience, but rather obedience results from salvation. MacArthur notes that the obedience here isn't cranking out rules. It is obedience to the faith and he mentioned Romans 1.5, and I thought it was fantastic. He states, the obedience that comes from faith for his namesake. He says that in his introduction to the letter to the Romans. It is an obedience that results from recognizing our king-priest. It is a recognition of the kingly priest and bowing before him in awe. You see, Christ is his kingly priesthood. It redeems more than just our past. It also redeems our future. That fellowship involves obedience. Christ was perfectly obedient. We are to follow the best we can that example by his power. This is, this is what is referring to is this, this changed life. Changed life from recognizing this work. And friend, this, this salvation is offered to you. Is offered to you as well. I uh, pray that you would take it. So we we looked at the old Aaronic priesthood, and then we looked at the new, complete, perfect priesthood of Christ. I pray that you were blessed. I pray that you would take these ideas and that you would hold fast to Jesus Christ, our eternal High Priest, when when you're struggling throughout this week. Let's pray. Uh, dear Lord, we thank you for this word. We thank you for the salvation that you offer through your perfect priesthood. Lord, I pray that right now you would open eyes to see you as you truly are. Lord, that um, people would recognize the perfection and the complete work that you've done for them and that they would come to a saving knowledge have a transformed life. Lord, uh, bless this time. Bless us as we go. Bless our uh, trunk or treat. Lord, I pray that we would um, just evangelize. We would share this good news. Share with people that there is a, a person who has made a sacrifice on their behalf and that they don't have to live in sin any longer. Um, bless us now, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.